Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Teaching pastor here, and if you're a first-time guest, you picked a great day to come check us out. Thanks for watching online. For those of you checking this out on the live stream and doing whatever, uh, last week, uh, my friend Kelsey was here and did a little talk. Uh, and if you missed it, it was great. You should definitely go back and listen. But two weeks ago, we kicked off a brand new series, uh, and we called it Wandering in Darkness. It's a series on suffering or pain, suffering, loss, that sort of things. Because uh, in, if you've ever been or if and when you go through a period or a season uh, of pain and suffering, it can often feel exactly like that. I'm just wandering through life for a little bit, right? Uh, and I'm wandering uh, in darkness and, and pain and suffering. Um, when, when those things happen, uh, we, we recognize that humans have always had uh, and looked to religion as a means of coping with suffering. Like religion has got, got a place for that. We go through that Darkness, and then we found God, and, and that maybe that's part of your story or whatever. Um, pain also has a way of being a like a vehicle for spiritual growth. Like we, you can look back. Some of you look back on a season of life and be like, "I grew more during that season of loss than I ever had before." It was a time I kind of like kind of figured out what life was about or whatever. And and yet you, <laughs> nobody would like ever go back and do that again. Would you ever do it over? I'd do it the same exact way. I'd go through the exact same loss. You'd be like, no, no, I'll take door number two, Alex. But, uh, but you can recognize in looking back that you grew through that. And, but then for some, uh, pain and suffering can be an off-ramp. We said that there was, in week one of this series, we said that there's an argument from evil. If there's a good God who's all-knowing and all-powerful, and yet he allows evil in the world, how do those things equate? How, how can that be true? And so therefore, I don't believe in God anymore, or I don't know, it can do all kinds of different things about it. So we're gonna talk about suffering for a few weeks, um, and I think it's good to kind of talk about it now when you're not maybe in the midst of it, uh, because when you're in the middle of it, the last thing you want to hear about is wisdom when it comes to suffering. You just want somebody to hear out your pain and, and agree with you that the world sucks and he's a jerk and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's what we're gonna do for a couple of weeks. Um, any uh, preacher, a good preacher with his or her salt knows that you can't talk about God and suffering without spending some time uh, in the Old Testament book known as uh, Job. It's a guy, it's about a, a guy named Job. That's why it's named Job. Uh, it shows up in the wisdom genre of, of literature for Job. It has to do with pain and suffering. It's one of the earliest texts uh, that we have, that we think we have uh, in terms of um, uh, what makes up the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, by, by that, I mean like the Jewish scriptures. These would be scriptures that they would feel like this is what we know about God. And it, it kind of deals with pain and suffering on a, on a big macro level. Um, and it's important. It's like, the, uh, it's like the hammer of the biblical toolbox. I mean, it's used for so many different things, right? And so that's the, the beauty of it. And, uh, and, and I said, in the course of this year, we're gonna look at four different ones, but we started with Job, four different people, um, and Job was one of them. But it's such a big one, it kind of encompassed a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks worth of our attention. In the book of Job, or the epic of Job, as I've called it, um, there are basically, as we said in the week one, three basic frameworks or, or lenses by which to look through this thing, breakdowns. If you haven't read it in a while or it's been, you know, whatever, it's been a while since you heard a message on it, 
Um, three sections. In section one is called the framing of the story. It's the framing of any good story. Um, if you've ever heard a, you know, a movie come on and be like, once upon a time in the land of blah, 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 you're like, okay, I'm setting the framework for the Lord of the Rings. I know where I'm at now. I know what kind of uh, things to expect. I should expect dragons and spells and all kinds of stuff. So there's a framing part of that. That's chapters one and two. And then the largest section of the book of Job is what we call the dialogues dialogues, bad things happen to Job in chapters one and two. And then we spend 34 chapters talking about it, him talking about it with his friends, his friends having words of advice for him, him responding to their advice saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Them saying, you're the bad one. Listen, you're the one that's had all this stuff happen to us. Don't criticize us. And then his wife at one point saying, I don't know what you did, but you should just curse God and die, which that's a pretty hard spot to get into in your marriage to hear that coming from your wife Uh, and him going, you know, him maintaining his integrity and his goodness and clinging to something throughout this entire dialogue. I don't know why this is happening to me. Um, Refusing to curse God and die. I'm not going to go that route. I know that's not for me. Um, But I refuse to believe in a God who is not good. That's what he keeps saying. And uh, I, I, this isn't good or it doesn't feel good. And I don't understand it. And I refuse to believe that God would act in this way. There's something about this I don't know and I don't understand. So for 34 chapters, that's essentially what we get. Uh, And then the last section, this is the one that we spent our time focusing on uh, in in week one, is the encounter. God shows up in a whirlwind and this voice kind of like comes out and begins to speak. And it says, who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? To chapter 38 right away. This is like this big storm, this big appearance. Who is this? Who are you to talk about things that you know not of, basically is what it is. Um, And there's a way in which to read that text and have it feel like God's coming out and going, how dare you talk to me that way? How dare you say you will not worship a God who is not good, right? And kind of like leveraging sort of, I'm all powerful. Uh, uh, Power is more important than good. I get to do what I want. I'm God. You're just Job, right? There's a way in which to read that, except that after God says this, he then goes into like several chapters and we call it, it's like, instead of dialogue, it's really more monologue of God talking to Job saying, were you there when I put the stars in the sky? Were you there when all of creation rejoiced at all of this? Were you there when I told the boundaries of the sea, here's how far you should go and no further? Were you there when I, when I created the world with all of these animals and have sustained them and continue to give them life? He's basically painting this picture for him. I've been a part of this process for a long period of time and throughout this entire thing, I've operated in goodness. And now you think in your brain that I have, I'm not, that something's not matching up, that I'm not good anymore, or, or that, that perhaps I, I, I've changed or done something like this, and or that I've betrayed you. That's a big thing. Like you're, I think that Job feels, you've betrayed me. And, and God says, I'm going to give you a face-to-face encounter because you know this. If you feel betrayed, you know that some things don't translate well. You text something, things get lost in translation. Tone doesn't translate. Things happen. And then all of a sudden you're like, I just need to drive there. I need to look at them face in the face. And, and I don't want to try and explain it over the phone or explain it through an email. I don't want it to get lost. I want you to see me and I want you to know that I genuinely do care. I want you to know that there may be things that you might not understand about why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, but sometimes I just need to be there to give it to you. And when you see my face, you'll know there'll be like this, 
first person encounter sort of experience that's gonna change your mind, that, that, that sometimes that experience or that encounter can do more than any set of words can do. And so uh, Job at the end of the encounter says, behold, I am vile. Behold, I like really don't know what I'm talking about. And God's like, I'm not done talking yet. And then he keeps going in and then he does this nether long soliloquy thing. Uh, and at the very end, Job says, I, I totally get it. Like you are good. You've always been good. I, I, um, I don't know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, I, I still don't understand this, but I, I am trusting that you're good. And we're clinging on to the, what, that, which is, that which is good. And so in, in the end of week one, I said, I don't know what you're going through, but like, it's okay for you to cling to, I, I, I worship, I, I only believe in a God who is good because I do think that he's good. And when he came, and a big piece of that is, I think when he showed up, he didn't chastise Job for like saying that. How dare you say that? You're not in a position to kind of challenge me. Instead, he goes, I, he's looking at him and goes, I understand why you would ask those questions. And then he turns his attention to Job's friends who kept saying, you know, you've done something wrong. This must be why. Like God, God wouldn't punish you if it wasn't this. And why are you lying to Job? Why have you ch- kind of chosen that? He saves his most angry words for Job's friends who aren't, aren't there with all of that. So anyways, that's kind of where we left off. But that is the back end of the story. Again, that's the encounter piece. That's section number three. That's kind of important and a good way to kind of start that sort of thing. But I want to jump backwards to the framing story of this in chapters one and two. It's a piece that I felt like is so rich and so deep and so full of stuff. I couldn't address it uh, and give it enough time for what it's worth in the first part of the series. So we wanted to come back to it. So, um, and I, I want to address at the very beginning, I said it's the Epic of Job. And when we read things like the Epic of Odysseus or, or, or the Iliad or the Odyssey or stuff like that, we recognize the, the folklore sort of intentionality of that kind of a text. That you know that when you're reading it, there's going to be, uh, it's not, it's not actu- uh, like accurate historical kind of stuff. I think that that's true uh, of Job. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not value in this sort of thing. Uh, and that it just because the story isn't factual and historical doesn't mean it can't add to your religious worldview. But one of the reasons I don't think that this is um, historically inaccurate text is because of the framing story. So let's read this because you're like, no, 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 it has to be true. Well, that's fine. I think you can or cannot believe whatever. It doesn't matter. But there's an interesting part of the framing story that I want to kind of dialogue with and and have a conversation on this morning. So that's where we're going to be. Chapters one and two of the book of Job. And chapter one, it kicks off in this way, verses one through three. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. I mean, this reads like a fairy tale, like a folk tale. I mean, it's easy so far. It's pretty typical for a story you read your kids at bedtime. A person's a person, no matter how small, right? And all this kind of like Dr. Seussy flow with it sort of feel to it, right? Now, verse six, listen to this. This is where it gets interesting. One day the angels, or some translations, perhaps better translations, it's the angelos or the messengers or the sons of God, all right? So let's put that in perspective. One day the messengers or the sons of God or the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. 
The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. An interesting text for sure. This is one of two almost identical uh, sections where there's a family gathering of some sort. Satan's there. There's a conversation that happens with God. uh, And then some sort of a deal is struck or a game. Let's play a game. And God's in on this game sort of thing. Uh, There's a small variation that does advance the story. And we'll get there when we get there and we'll discuss. But first, imagine this scene. This framing story. What is the author of Job trying to get at? Before he goes in the dialogues and this whirlwind speech and all this kind of stuff, there's some sort of a family gathering uh, and somehow Satan's involved in being there. And um, it's like, you know, immediately we're put in that spot of, well, what is he doing there? You know, I mean, that should be a natural reaction for us reading this sort of thing. Um, I've been a part of being a part of a couple of like, like chill families, like my family's pretty chill and the family that I married into is pretty chill. Um, But I've been a part of wedding planning before where the bride and groom, we meet together at like a coffee shop and we're going through like, what do you want to be a part of your ceremony? Well, I want this and I want this. I don't want this first and I do want this first. And then there's like this awkward shifting a little bit and I can tell they want to ask me something, but they don't want to bring it up and they want the other other person to bring it up. Uh, And somebody would be like, hey, so you know how like some pastors or preachers will do that whole, if anybody objects to this union, speak now or forever, hold your peace. You're not going to like do that at our wedding, are you? Right. And I'm always, anytime that that gets brought up and I'm like, oh boy, there's a story behind that. Like buckle up. Here we go. You know what I mean? Like if you're bringing that up and I'll say, no, 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 that, that's, I don't actually know any pastor that actually says that. I think that was like made for TV for like drama, you know, to like advance a story of some sort. And they're like, oh, good. Okay, God, thankfully. He's not invited, but he might show up. And I just, you know, don't want to deal with that uh, sort of thing, like this awkward family gathering piece uh, or whatever. And then I've been a part of uh, weddings where, like, we're all dressed up. The flowers are there. The food's getting served. Everybody's showing up. The wedding's supposed to start at 3, but they never start on time because the bride's never convinced there's enough people there. And they're, they're coming. They're on their way. So we're going to start at 3.30. It's going to be fine. And I'm like, great, whatever you want to do. So uh, and then all of a sudden, like a groomsman, or a bridesmaid comes in the door and I'm like, oh my God, he's here. Oh my God, he's here. And it's like the words begin to spread. Don't tell her. Should we tell her? Should we tell her? And it's kind of like, you're like, oh my gosh, somebody showed up that doesn't belong there, right? Somebody's here that like, I can't believe he would have the audacity to be here. So, I mean, that's kind of a way of reading this text. The sons of God gathered together to kind of experience a joyful family gathering of some sort of kind. And the author of Job wants to make very well mention that there's some sort of an alienation going on that Satan was also there, right? Some, a comment that is directed in that way. On the one hand, he comes to the gathering, a fact that he you know, kind of tells us a little bit that he might have a place in the as it were family. On the other hand, the text also makes it plain that there's something not right about him being there, uh, that his attendance has to be noted as a separate fact. Okay? So there's an awkwardness. There is what I would call an alienation involved in this. Like it's us and then him kind of thing, right? And then the question, God says to Satan, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Now, again, tonality is important. We are simply reading this. How do you read this? You could read this as, so where have you been? In the same way you ask uh, your student who comes home, your, your high school student that comes home an hour late after curfew, right? Uh, from a Dust Devils game, perhaps, or something like that. I don't know, whatever, like last night. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so where have you been? There's a way of asking that question. And, but 
Sometimes a question of this kind is designed not to convey accusation and blame, but rather to produce insight for the person being questioned. There's a way of asking this question that's, for, that's putting something on that person that's being asked to kind of deal with something that they're not willing to deal with. So as an, another biblical example, God shows up in the garden one day after Adam's eaten from the apple and Adam's hiding from him because he's naked. And, he, and, and God says, Adam, where are you? And it's not like God doesn't, again, I, we've talked about this before. I don't think that God doesn't know where Adam is. I think he knows the entire time where Adam is. He's not like, it's not like it's a cosmic game of hide and seek. And he's like, where are you? Right? I think he's going, where are you? And why are you hiding? I'm hiding because I'm naked. Who told you that you were naked? Right? He's, he's pulling out from Adam an, an opportunity to deal with something. You've now experienced the knowledge of something that's good and bad, you know what bad is. You know that you've done something bad. You've experienced shame in that. How are you dealing with that? Let's talk about that. Where are you? Or later on in the story, just a couple of chapters later, uh, two brothers immediately start fighting as brothers do. Listen, it's biblical. If you fight with your brother, we've been doing that since the beginning of time. They fight, but this one, in this one, they murdered each other. That's extreme. So let's not go there. But Cain murders his brother Abel. There's a sacrifice thing that's going on and he's jealous of him. And instead of uh, offering a better sacrifice, he decides to, to kill him. And then God shows up and says, Cain, where's your brother Abel, right? Knowing full well, and probably Cain knows too, you know exactly, you're God. You're like omniscient. Like, what is this game that you're playing? I'm giving you an opportunity to have a little bit of agency in the situation to kind of t- talk about this and do something about it. It's a gift. In asking this question, I'm doing something for you. I'm allowing you the opportunity to talk about this and to engage in this at your level as to me just coming down going, I demand answers. I demand answers. What's going on? If I can push, and you've done this as a parent, you've asked certain questions to your kids, hoping that they'll kind of take it and run with it a little bit and kind of work and, and think about it for them. And they're, cause you, you know, you can't control everything for them. And so they're developing and emerging into their own human, like adult life and, and their brains expanding, all this kind of stuff. And so you're asking them questions that are hopefully kind of pushing them towards something, making them more integrated as a person in this sort of thing. I think that's what's happening here. Satan is asked by God, where have you been? His response is partly self-revelatory and partly evasive. Ah, you know, from roaming around the earth and throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. You know, places to go, people to see, lots of things. Busy guy, lots of things going on here. He answers with a process and not a location. It's not a place, but a search for a place. He comes to join the sons of God in a family sort of gathering, not from any settled spot, but from a state of restlessness. And so to summarize where he's at and what we're dealing with, Satan has experienced some degree of alienation from God and some absence of peace. Historically speaking, we know that the Christian tradition says Satan was a fallen angel who was once an angel who then rejected it and kind of of did his own thing. And so he's now experiencing this sort of space, alienation, awkwardness in terms of his being in the presence of God and some sort of absence of peace in this. And there's... This begins to show problems for Satan and anybody who cares for Satan. There's a way in which to read this and to see that based on the original question, where have you been or what have you been doing? God is someone who has at least had some care and love 
for Satan. Insofar as he somehow still fits in the group of the sons of God, insofar as he's still welcome to participate and show up in this sort of thing, and to the degree that God will have and ought to have for Satan the sort of attitude he has towards the group of his sons, he asks him questions in hoping that he can move him better and back towards this. See, I think when, if the church and the religion that you grew up in pitted God versus Satan as some sort of a cosmic war and we're, we're bitter enemies, sworn enemies, and I could never have anything to do with them. It's like, you know, it's kind of like, like I could never, ever see myself voting and cheering for the 49ers. That feels like even if it was like they're going against the Steelers or something like that, it's just like, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way. Like bitter enemies to the bitter end. All I want to see is failure, right? Um, and that might be shallow or whatever. That is a way in which, that is true, I think, on one side of things. I think that Satan is always at war with God. But I think with this kind of story, there's a way in which we read the story where if God is the creator of all and he's in the business of reconciling all creation unto himself, even if he knows that Satan's position is he'll never get there and he'll never do this, it still shows up in love, if God is love, that he would want some sort of integration of Satan back into this. Like he's asking these questions to be like, here's a chance. I'm giving you a chance to come back in, to not feel alienation towards this, to not experience restlessness, to live a better opportunity and a better existence in this. So perhaps this question, a way of reading this, and if that kind of doesn't fit with your framework and that's kind of completely out of bounds, I get it. I mean, it's kind of a different deal. That's why I feel like I couldn't address it in week one completely. Um, I would just say, give me like, let's, let's finish the story and see if this is a uh, aesthetically true a way, a, approach to reading this entire text. How do we make sense of Satan being there and involved in this sort of thing, if, if not for this? So... Then my next question becomes kind of just a statement of like existence for us. What makes a person restless? Why are we restless or what, what, what looks, what does restlessness feel like or look like or whatever? To rest is to stay somewhere without moving on. Moving on voluntarily is prompted by a desire to be somewhere else. And that desire indicates that the place from which one wants to move somehow fails to meet one's needs or desires. I hate it here. I need to move. And then you move and you find out you hate it there too, right? And you're like, this isn't at all what I signed up for. This place sucks. Now I got to move because now California's the spot. This is the, you know, Finley's the spot. I got to find my spot. I got to go somewhere else. I'm always constantly restless. And this, there's, there can be a flaw in which my desires and my needs are not being met. And that desire and that, that flaw can be external. The place could genuinely be terrible, right? The taxes are too high. The people aren't friendly. The this, that, and the other thing. You thought it was going to be this great job. You show up and it's not a great job. The supervisor who was so kind in the interview process turns out to be a total jerk. Um, and so that can be entirely external. But we all know that eventually at some point, if the problem continuously is always external, if everywhere we go is that didn't meet my needs and that didn't meet my needs and that marriage didn't meet my needs and that thing didn't meet my needs, then perhaps there's also an opportunity for it not to be external, but it to be, yeah, internal. So we're restless. A person who's not integrated in himself or herself is someone who in one way or another wants and does not want the same thing. There are relationships where two people hate and love each other at the same time. 
I hate the way that I love you. I actually typed that in because I was like, I think there's a song about this. Turns out there's like 50 songs about this, guys. They're all highly rated on Spotify. You can listen to all of them. It's great. So the first episode suggests that Satan is an alienated, internally divided son of God. And I think it portrays God as exercising care for Satan through questioning intended to elicit insight on Satan's part about his condition. Do you realize that you're disintegrated? Do you realize that you're in living this internally divided state? Do you realize this restlessness that you find? Where have you been? I don't know, just around, man. I'm just, it's a process, not a place that I come from. Do you realize this awkwardness that's involved in this? And I think that God is trying to put this out there so that perhaps Satan will realize this isn't what I thought it would be. It's not where I hoped I would be. I don't like who I am. And maybe begin the process of reintegration in back into the family, back into a scenario where he's experiencing the joy of coming together with the sons of God or the angels of God or whatever. That is a better way. We would expect the next question then to be another question that perhaps presses it a little bit further or moves the ball down the field in terms of this reintegration. And yet what we find is this. God saying, have you considered my servant Job? Because there's nobody like him on earth, a perfect and righteous man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And listen, I know this can kind of sound like a mom at family dinner who halfway through the meal goes, do you hear about your brother's new job? And you're like, oh, great. You know what I mean? And you can tell she's just like prodding the bear a little bit. He got a new job. He's great. Super, comes with benefits, all this kind of stuff. Did you see his new girlfriend? And you're like, okay, we get it. He's better than me. We all know this, right? We, we, we've experienced this sort of thing. If manipulation and malice are in play, then it doesn't feel like, and that's, a, that's by the way, a very common way of reading. Like Job, uh, or, or God has this conversation with Satan and, then, and says, well, Job's great. I mean, think about Job over here. And if we, if we look at that as, as God is kind of like bragging on Job at the expense of Satan, then it's kind of incongruous with what we see in the first question, which is what have you been doing? Giving him a chance to kind of deal with it and work things through. So in one spot, he like cares about Satan, but and then over here, he's like mocking him. And, and it's not great for Job too. He's not loving Job well in doing this. Because if you've ever sat at that dinner table with your mom saying something great about you in the presence of your sister or brother, you don't don't feel like, go mom, you go. You feel like, come on, mom, stop. Like you're just, all you're doing is alienating me more from that person, right? You're not integrating that person back into this family. You're only making it more awkward for them and more awkward for me. And I'm like proud of you for bringing this up. So that's not a great way to love Job either. So therefore, if that's true, I don't know that that's the tone that's involved in this question. I don't think he's trying to provoke Satan towards comparison, externally comparing you know, his flaws with his. I don't think that that's what's happening. Asked in this way, it only alienates Satan even more and makes Job feel like a pawn in a cosmic game of why can't you be more like Job or whatever. Remember when God gives his monologue to Job, he shows that he deals lovingly with Job even when it looks chaotic and haphazard, that he's always had a plan and that he has always operated out of goodness, which wouldn't make sense if he's now being used as a pawn. So something's not right here. Is there then another way to understand God's question to Job or to Satan about Job that ties it more tightly to the preceding exchange between God and Satan, but also constitutes a further manifestation of divine care for Satan? Is there a way of reading this thing of saying, have you considered Job, not as a way of bragging about Job, making him feel bad about not being Job, but about challenging Satan to deal with his mess and reintegrate back into a holy and healthier relationship with God. 
Is there a way in which this question can be read as integrally connected with Satan's immediately preceding answer that he's been roaming around the earth restlessly? Look at his answer. Look at Satan's answer in this. Verse nine and 10. Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge all around him and around his house and all that is his? How does Satan know that there's a hedge around Job? Because it's almost certain that Job doesn't see some sort of hedge of divine protection. I mean, he granted in his monologues with his friends or dialogues with his friends, he says I, he recognizes prosperity, but he's not saying, where did my divine hedge of protection go? He's just saying, I don't know why God would do all of these sorts of things. So I don't think that Job sees this, but presumably Satan knows about a hedge as Job does not because Satan has run into it and found he could not get past it. The only reason Satan knows about it is because he tried to do something about it and recognized there are some things that I must not be able to do against Job. Why would he run into it unless he's been trying to do some sort of harm to Job or to Job's house or to something or someone that belongs to Job? And if this is true, it gives us insight into the nature of his actions as he roams throughout the earth. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Oh, you know, going around here and there, staying busy, doing my thing. Trying to do harm to the inhabitants of earth and deliberately trying to thwart what God is doing with and for at least some of those inhabitants. And he doesn't say it apologetically and he doesn't say it in a way that doesn't assume that God knows exactly what he's doing. This might be new information to you, but I'm undermining everything that you care about. What if God knows that and he asks this question and he points out Job, uh, Job's story, knowing full well Satan's been actively trying to undermine him and hurt him because he wants him to talk about it because he wants to draw that out and be like, hey, we should probably discuss this. It seems like you're actively trying to dislodge people, my creation from me. So back to the awkward party guest that I mentioned, oh my God, he's here. I can't believe he showed up to this wedding or whatever. It's probably a little bit less like that and more analogous to the sudden appearance at a family gathering of a son who's become a member of a group dedicated to overthrowing the things his parents care most about and love best. It's somebody whose parents are dedicated, have dedicated their entire lives to something. And the son is actively going against that, doing things against that completely and still showing up for Thanksgiving dinner and the awkwardness involved in that. That's the kind of relationship that's taking place. Where are you coming from? Wasn't just trying to get Satan to consider his restlessness, but also designed to bring out in the open the estrangement between God and Satan. Or to put it in another sort of example that we might be able to understand, imagine that in the turmoil of an election year, the son of a Democratic president who's up for re-election joined the campaign of the rival Republican candidate and worked hard to defeat his dad. Just theoretically speaking, right? Like, Imagine the turmoil and in the relationship involved in that. First, you bring cocaine into my White House, and now you're working for Trump. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I don't know. That's just, I'm just, you take that for what it's worth. I don't have no idea. We're going to remove that from the audio if it's going to go out online, just so you know. Where have you been? Oh, you know. Imagine that that takes place, though, right? This candidate, and he, now he's working for the opposition party. Where have you been? What have you been doing? You know? Talking to voters, a lot of unhappy people out there. Lots of things to talk about. Man, you have made it easy for me. My work is so easy. 
And if that's how we read it, then the proposition of have you considered Job can be read like, have you thought about my very strongest, most dedicated, most loyal supporters in Massachusetts? To which then Satan's response of does Job fear you for nothing is more like supporters. Supporters, what supporters? They only vote for you because you give them everything that they ask for. You've bought their votes. You've made it easy for them. Like why would they ever go any direction? They don't actually like you. They like what you provide for them. His answer paints Job as hypocritical, self-seeking, given to religiousness solely for the sake of prosperity, whose only allegiance is to wealth. Take away their wealth, they wouldn't vote for you anymore. Which points out some things about cynicism that I think are critical. Some notes on cynicism and how it shows up in a person. If you're taking notes, this is like the only thing I had that you were like, you should write down. The cynical tend to see everything through the projection of their own inability to integrate around goodness. Everything, my inability to integrate around goodness becomes the filter by which I see everything. The cynical person sees romantic love as only lust, political leadership as only power seeking, disagreement as only personal enmity, compassionate and benevolence as only manipulation. They don't really love each other. That's just, there's a life insurance thing somewhere in there. I don't know what it is, but they don't really care about poor people. They care about having the image of caring for poor people, but they don't actually care. They're not in this for the politics. They don't, and they're not in this, it's for the people. No, it's not. It's not for the people. It's for you to be able to go to some uppity up dinner thing and have political authority and everybody wants to talk to you and have you over to vote for their things or be a part of their thing. It's all just brokenness. The cynical person sees others through the lens of his or her own character. So when God asks Satan to consider Job, perhaps he's therefore challenging Satan to come to terms with the fact that there is at least one thing in the world that is genuinely good. If God knows that this is gonna work out and stand up and Satan is cynical about everything and it's never right, it's ne- that's never gonna work. And perhaps the invitation from God is a chance for him to see it. And if he can see it and feel it and walk away going, okay, there is at least one person, fine, one person who's genuinely good, then perhaps goodness is seen as an option for Satan himself to begin to initiate back into his own life. That perhaps he's so concerned with the reconciliation of Satan back into not alienation and not restlessness, but a more integrated reality that he's saying, look at Job, man. He gets it. He understands it. That future is possible for you too, if you'll have it. If a cynical person could be brought to concede even one good thing in the world, further integration might be possible. And Satan's only response, at least at this part in the story, is if you weren't continually protecting him, he'd be exactly like me, which is the take of a cynical person who sits arms crossed at a wedding, who hears the bride and groom exchange vows of in sickness and in health, and they say something like, they don't even know what love looks like in terms of sickness, right? We'll see. If If that ever happens, we'll see how it all plays out in that way. And Satan's 
game is attack him. And if you won't uh, allow me to, I'll bet he curses your name before you know it. And his real aim is to use suffering as a means to drive Job into alienation from God. I want him to experience the same thing I'm experiencing. Awkwardness at a family gathering, alienation from God, unsettled restlessness. This is not a question now, by the way, of whether God is justified in allowing Job suffering because that's immediately our response. How could God say, because God eventually goes, all right, let's do it. Take, take, you know, he says, uh, take, take all of his stuff away. And, and Satan knows God's not gonna do that. And he goes, and if you're not gonna do it, I'll do it. God goes, okay, fine. You can do whatever you want to Job, except you cannot touch him physically, him, his, his own person. Everything that he owns, you can do whatever you want with. Now, we read this and go, how dare a good and loving God allow that to happen? And I think there might be an answer for that, but we're gonna get to that in a couple weeks. We're not gonna try and answer that today. So just like take that like caveat and put that to the side for a second because we're just dealing with this for today. But in this, in this scene and in this story then, Satan leaves the presence of God, goes and all of a sudden these terrible things start happening to Job, right? A storm comes up and a roof caves in on his family. Uh, marauders come in and kill uh, other parts of his family. Everything that he has is taken from him. His wealth, his social standing, all is a wreck. Him physically is fine at this point, but everything else external to him. And we said, this is the first wave of suffering is, uh, is extremely bad for him. And the end, at the end of chapter one, because the dialogues of him kind of woe is me and, and kind of talking about I demand a God that is good really doesn't come until the suffering becomes internal. After this first wave of suffering, here's his response in verse 20 and 21. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head, a sign of mourning, a sign of like, oh man, I'm wearing black to a funeral, that kind of thing. Then he fell to the ground in worship and he said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked will depart. I showed up in this world with nothing, I'd leave with nothing. The Lord gave everything I had was given to me by God anyways and the Lord has taken away. The name of the Lord be praised. It's like the ultimate like, man, I would love to get there. I don't know that I ever could. But if you could have an idealist response to pain and suffering in the world, this would probably be it. If you really truly believed and your faith was so integrated into your life, that I trust God completely for everything, that naked I came into this world, naked I leave it. The Lord gives, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know that I could ever get there, but this is pictured, and again, it's a story, it's a thing. That's the end, end result of this deal. Which is like, here, here he is. This, it worked out exactly as God knew that it would. If I could just show Satan one example of something that is truly and genuinely good. And maybe perhaps he'll recognize, do I, I don't want alienation. I don't want uh, disintegratedness. I don't want uh, brokenness. I don't want chasing and restlessness in my entire life. Maybe he'll move back towards me in this way. And then here's how chapter two goes. I mentioned that there were two encounters. The second one is almost identical with it, with some minor changes as we'll get to it. On another day, first one of chapter two, on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself, or himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. What are we seeing? Like the like verbiage is the exact same thing. Clearly a story is being told here. And whenever something is repeated like this, it's always the variations that are like the important parts. What's different about this, right? You see those two pictures and it's like spot the 11 differences between this picture and this picture. You're not like focused on the scene. You're focused on what's different about it, right? 
Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then, and at that moment right then, we see a shift in the conversation, a shift in the approach, a shift in the thing, a different question being asked. But to explore that, we're gonna have to wait till next week. That's why you gotta come back for part three of Wandering in Darkness. A little cliffhanger, it works. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that this story of Job would show a side of you that does not stop attempting to reconcile your creation unto yourself. That you do everything within your power to make us, uh, to offer us the opportunity to work on the brokenness that is in our life, to challenge our cynicism, to see the goodness, to perhaps implement some of that goodness into us and take steps towards you. That that's been a part of your strategy from the beginning, that it's not changed, that you do the same thing even now, that we find ourselves in this story. And whether that's, we see ourselves as, as the disintegrated person, the accuser who, who, uh, who, who has big questions about what to do with this, or if we see ourselves as Job and hopefully the inspira- inspiring piece of him that says, no matter what happens, naked I came into the world, naked, naked I, do I leave it. May we uh, find ourselves in this story And may you give us the wisdom to know what to do with this, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.